Welcome to NFP's Insights from the Experts podcast. Each episode showcases timely expertise and perspective from members of the NFP community, delivering information, analysis, and solutions that address our clients' most significant challenges. Hello, and welcome to the Benefits Compliance Podcast. I'm Chase Cannon, and I'm here with my colleague, Suzanne Spradley. We're both attorneys with NFP's legal and compliance team, and we're on the podcast to help try and break down some of the major issues in front of employers with respect to their compliance efforts and their group health plans. Today, Suzanne, we're going to look into another provision from the Consolidated Appropriations Act of 2021, or the CAA of 2021, That's the legislation that was enacted right at the end of last year. And we're gonna look into another provision that impacts group health plans. This time, we're gonna focus on mental health parity. And this one goes into effect quickly, so it's important to put it on employers' radars. Give us a quick background on this, Suzanne. Right, so the CAA, the, the Appropriations Act, enacted the end of last year, did impose new requirements on group health plans to ensure compliance with the Mental Health Parity and Addiction Equity Act. So we'll refer to that as MHPAEA or Mental Health Parity generally. Um, Mm -hmm. And unlike many of the provisions that were tied to group health plans, this one does go into effect rather quickly, February 10th of this year. So just in a few days. Um, As background, the MHPAEA was originally passed back in October of 2008, and its purpose was to end discriminatory healthcare practices against those with mental illness and or addiction. Um, The statute, as many of you already know, generally prohibits plans from applying financial requirements or treatment limitations to mental health or substance use disorder, which we'll refer to as MH or SUD benefits, um, that are more restrictive than are applied to med-surg, medical surgical benefits. The ACA extended the mental health parity requirements to the individual market, so we now see it um, extended more broadly. But the key here is there's no mandate on providing these benefits, but if they are provided, then they must be provided in an equitable manner. So I will say that many states have also enacted their own laws on parity, so don't forget to check your state laws. And on that note, there's a helpful tool at paritytrack.org that tracks state laws on this issue. So check that yes, one out. That's a helpful site. And yes, this kind of tracks the general trend of trying to treat mental health issues on the same level as physical health issues, right? We've just kind of seen this groundswell over the last few years. Um, in particular. But before you begin describing the new benefit, let's talk about enforcement of the general mental health parity requirements to help put this in perspective. So EPSA, which is the Employee Benefit Security Administration, is the federal um, governmental entity that enforces ERISA and relies on about 400 investigators to review plans. And there are roughly 2.4 million private non-governmental plans in the U.S., so they definitely have their work cut out for them. For example, right. since 2011, they've investigated about 4,000 plans, so just you know, just a, just a, a minor amount of those plans that are out there, but it typically will come into their uh, view by way of, of some type of complaint often. When there is an issue, they typically require the participants to be reimbursed after the claim is re-adjudicated in, a, in an equitable manner, plus interest. And so we've also seen litigation. So there was a recent uh, court case that was a private class action lawsuit in Whitby United Behavioral Health um, that also applied this uh, remedy of um, re-adjudicating the claims 
And we can also see the DOL refer violations to the IRS, which can assess a civil penalty of up to $100 a day, but it's unclear if they've actually done so already. Yeah, so lots of different parts of mental health parity, uh, but these have come up where the plan didn't treat uh, mental health benefits on the same level as physical, right? That's kind of where these are coming from. Correct. Before we get too far into the new requirement or ways in which plans might fail the new requirement, let's do a quick recap on the part of the mental health parity requirements that's really getting attention from the new law here. Right, so the area of concern under the mental health parity requirements are the non-quantitative treatment limitations. And whenever I heard that term non-quantitative, it seems like a mouthful and doesn't really bring anything to mind right (laughs) off the bat. And so, but if you think of the term quantitative as meaning measuring something by quantity, Uh, So a quantitative limit would obviously be like a monetary, a dollar limit or a visit limit. Non-quantitative then must look for something other than um, something based on quantity. So, for example, it could be things related to medical management. It could be prior authorization, um, step therapies or different methods that are used to determine provider rates. So all of those types of things, and we'll discuss some of them in more detail um, relate to non-quantitative limits, and they must be on par with those that are on the med surge benefits as well. Um, and so the parity requirements, when they do an analysis of them, they look at them based on the six classifications of services. So they must be on par within these various classifications. So you have, you have inpatient, in-network, and out-of-network requirements. You have outpatient, in-network, and out-of-network requirements. You have prescription drugs and emergency benefits. So there must be within each classification a parity um, with med search benefits. There have been uh, challenges with both compliance and enforcement of these non-quantitative limits because that term is so broad. And so, for example, in response to the Cures Act in 2016, federal agencies were required to issue guidance and step up their enforcement because there was really uh, some some, uh, variance in how this was being applied. And so they issued uh, several sets of FAQs to encourage uniformity in enforcement. So for example, one FAQ provided an example of a plan that applied a more restrictive dosage limit than professional treatment guidelines recommended for a certain drug that was used to treat opioid use disorders. Yet the plan followed professional guidance when it set dosage limits for med surge prescriptions. So it goes back to looking at things like that, like what is the basis for applying a certain limit? So the key here is that the decision by the plans pharmacy committee to deviate from the professional guidelines didn't automatically violate the rule, but it was the lack of comparable evaluation for med surge benefits that was an issue. Right. So when when you say med surge, that's medical and surgical. And I think I kind of referred to that as physical type of things, but just to clarify our terminology there. Right. Our listeners. But we, we can see how these uh, non-quantitative limits, how those can get complicated. But what did the most recent um, law do, the CAA at the end of 2020? Well, OK, so the current rules entitle a participant to request information about the processes and the factors that are applied to a non-quantitative standard to either mental health or substance use disorder benefits as compared to like medical surgical benefits. But the the CAA, the Consolidated Appropriations Act, added two more requirements to health plans. They said that they must provide a comparative analysis and they must disclose that analysis and other information to the DOL, the HHS, and the Department of Treasury, which are the three agencies that are really overseeing this issue. 
And the agencies were required to aggregate that information and then provide it publicly. And they must, they must ask at least 20 health plans a year or health issuers to um, provide that comparative analysis to them. So that doesn't sound like many, but at least it will, when provided, when aggregated and provided publicly, will also give some helpful information to other group health plans. So despite the requirement to perform and document a comparative analysis, Section 203 doesn't provide any specific guidance on what that should look like or what information it must contain, but they did provide templates to complete like a side-by-side -side comparison to document the processes, strategies, evidentiary standards, and other factors to help meet that parity standard. So again, the key here is that plans must be prepared to make these disclosures of comparative analysis by February 10th if they get a request in from the DOL. Obviously, when they're only looking at 20 a year and you've got 2.4 million private plans out there and more when you include uh, governmental plans, um, the likelihood of you getting hit with a request for a comparative analysis is slim. Nonetheless, it's important to try to get your ducks in a row on this. Right. So that February 10th date, like you mentioned, is coming up quick. Um, but DOL is not going to make the request of very many plans, but plans still have to be prepared. Um, so what else, what, what do we know about the comparative analysis that's required? So they did indicate that if the, the agencies request a group health plan's comparative analysis, not only you know, must they provide this comparative analysis, but they also must provide other information that has to be submitted to the agency. And that would include things like uh, terms. So the specific plan or coverage terms on NQTLs and a description of all mental health and substance use disorder benefits as compared to the medical or surgical benefit in which each term is applied. Number two, factors that are used to determine those limits. Um, number three, the evidentiary standards and any other sources on which they rely to back up those factors. Number four, a separate comparative analysis on each NQTL that demonstrates that the process of strategies, evidentiary standards, and other factors that are used to apply those standards are comparable to the MedSearch similar standards. And number five, the result of the comparative analysis. So they that indicate that the plan or coverage is or is not in compliance with the mental health parity requirements. So there are some templates out there that will help with that analysis. And I will say that the DOL has provided a self-compliance tool and the requirement of the disclosures that I just mentioned are identical to question seven in the self-compliance tool. So I would certainly recommend looking that up and walking through that tool when you are doing that, that uh, com comparative analysis. Yeah, so can you tell us a little bit more about that self-compliance tool? Again, the, the plan will first identify that if whether or not there is a non-quantitative treatment limit. So first identify what those limits are. Then you will need to identify the factors that were considered when they imposed the limit. Like, for example, is there excessive utilization of a drug or recent medical cost escalation on a certain treatment? Third, the plan must identify the source used to place that limit, such as were there medical expert reviews? Was there evidentiary standards that were published from a medical group? Was there some type of internal review? For example, if excessive utilization of a service is a factor that's used to justify prior authorization, then show us the relevant evidentiary source that could be something like internal claims analysis that shows an increase in the average utilization or a published study on average utilization. So that those are some examples. And then fourth, 
um, tell us the strategies and the evidentiary standards compared with those that are applied to the medical surge side. So a finding may be that an analysis of internal claims shows that excess utilization and recent cost increases were the reason for imposing the same prior authorization as it related to medical surgical benefits. That gives you a kind of a high level overview yeah. of what that process may look like. Okay. So usually when we get a law like this, the agencies, in this case, you already mentioned which agencies with the DOO and the treasury, and uh, they usually put out some type of guidance. So with the compressed time frame here, we're talking about a law that was passed in December that's now due in February. Do you anticipate any guidance here that will help with this? Yeah. <laughs> so this is what's interesting is the agencies, and again, that's the, the DOL, the Treasury Department, and HHS are required to issue their joint garden guidance um, within 18 months of the date of the Consolidated Appropriations Act. So that pushes us out to June of 2022. So I would imagine wow. that there would be some leeway in um, enforcement of this. But nonetheless, the guidance is required to contain information for participants also who would like to file complaints about parity violations. And the agencies are required to issue even more examples on methods for determining what an appropriate um, NQTL would look like for both mental health and substance use disorder and for med surge benefits. So they're really, they're really wanting more clarification. It seems like it's been such a muddy term and it's been, um, the standards have been applied inconsistently across the board. And so they're really wanting some more guardrails and more explanations, give us some real true examples on what it should look like. So keep in mind that the new requirements apply across the entire healthcare system. So that means all ERISA plans, including grandfather plans. It means health insurers, including individual markets, small group market, large group market. It also applies to CMS regulated self-insured and local governmental plans that have not opted out of mental health parity rules. It also applies to Medicaid and CHIP, although they will be deemed to satisfy the requirements if they comply with the Medicaid mental health parity documentation standards that are already in place. So broad scope of wanting these, these standards implemented for sure. Yeah. Okay. So in the meantime, while we have kind of this gap in specific guidance, what, what should group health plans and the employers that sponsor them tell us about a little bit more about the, like the practical side, how to prepare in the absence of this guidance? Well, fortunately for plan sponsors, truly, um, although the mental health parity requirements and including the new requirements apply to group health plans, usually it's the insurance carriers or the TPAs that they must rely on that either help establish the, the NQTLs or do an analysis really of, of how they compare to the medical surgical benefits. So this means that the TPAs or the carriers are the ones that are generally doing the design of the benefits, the medical management techniques, they maintain the provider networks, they process the claims, they develop the provider reimbursement methodology. So really the group health plan is very much um, having to rely upon them. Um, it would be certainly helpful for them to, to disclose information related to this. I can tell you now that they, both carriers and TPAs are reluctant to do so. Mm -hmm. And um, so it's gonna take some push and, and possibly this law will help with that to provide some of that data to the group health plans. So I would recommend for plan sponsors that they reach out to their carriers or TPAs, ask what information they are taking in to prepare for this new compliance. The TPA, if it hasn't already conducted a comparative analysis, will need to take, you know, take that into account and, 
it does take time that involves like scrutinizing the clinical guidelines or the provider reimbursement method. All of that takes time to look at every single type of treatment level that applies to mental health and substance use disorder. Mm-hmm. So if it hasn't already been started, they could start with just a review of the specific areas such as like claim denials uh, or appeals that apply to mental health or substance use disorders. Um, that would certainly be a good place to start to identify what potential issues there are. Um, And in reviewing those denied claims, they should determine whether there was a treatment limit that triggered the denial, and if so, whether the necessary comparative analysis has been performed and documented to demonstrate that um, that treatment limit was permissible as compared to medical and surgical benefits. Mm -hmm. In addition, if a DOL does request such an analysis um, before it's even complete, the employer and its legal counsel could certainly try to push back and ask for additional time. We see this practice often, um, you know, when there are document requests from DOL audits, we see some pushback. And I would imagine that they'll be more lenient given the, the time frame in which this was implemented. So looking forward into future contracting, when you're negotiating your contract terms for 2022, for example, you want to consider requiring vendors to complete this analysis as a prerequisite to engaging in your service and require them to notify you if a federal or a state authority finds that there is some type of parity violation. That's a great point, Suzanne. We've already had um, heard about this from our uh, clients and vendors. They're already struggling with this idea of whether a TPA or a carrier is going to be responsible or, or help out in any way. And part of that is, come, is based on the idea that this wasn't really negotiated previously and now it's a new requirement. So you have these existing contracts and you have these little disputes about you know, which party is going to pick this up. And so, and it's a challenge for employers because like you're saying, most of the time the TPA or the carrier is really the one with the information. Right. If they're pushing back on the employer, the employer is going to have to go back to the TPA or carrier to request the information to be able to do it. And so some real tension there and this idea of thinking about this going into future contracts, I think is a really helpful bit for, uh, for employers. Yeah, and I I would imagine that TPAs and carriers don't want to have that given uh, that piece of information that they're unwilling to disclose um, this information given to the DOL or to CMS or to, you know, the IRS, no one, the Department of Treasury, none of most carriers or TPAs would not want that type of uh, light shined on them. And so I would I would anticipate that they would try to work with them in, in getting that information together, certainly if there's been a request made. Um, but, you know, really the biggest mental health parity risk for plant sponsors is litigation. And we've seen, I mentioned that one earlier case, um, but in WIT, for example, the federal court ordered a mental health service provider for insured and self-insured plans to correct ERISA violations by reprocessing, reprocessing more than 67,000 denied claims. Right. So you can see that, you know, this could really turn into a significant issue, um, certainly for TPAs and for carriers, um, but also for plant sponsors as well. Right. Yeah. So this is all very helpful. There's been a lot of buzz about this. I mean, I've kind of mentioned the groundswell over the last few years, but particularly in the last few weeks with uh, this piece of legislation and and the discussion and buzz you've heard through the news in our world, sort of what, what this might mean. So thank you very much, Suzanne, for breaking this down a little bit more and certainly helping us understand it. Um, And with that, as we say at the end of our podcast, it's a wrap. wrap. Thank you for joining us. us.